Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. My next guest is the wonderful Cressy Wrestling CBE, recently upgraded, who is a multi-award winning entrepreneurial environmentalist. Let's call her that. I'm sure she'll correct me. But after first meeting the London Fire Brigade in 2005, Cressy launched Elvis and Cressy, which rescues and transforms decommissioned fire hoses into innovative lifestyle products that return and then returns 50% of those profits to the firefighters charity. The company now collects 12 different waste streams and has several charitable partnerships and collaborations across multiple industries. Cressy, I don't know where these amazing guests come from, but Cressy, thank you so much for being on the Sandra Forte podcast. There's an awful lot of people listening to you from around the world. Uh, and and this, is a, this is a backstory that when I was doing the research with the team, I, it blew me away. How can somebody take a decommissioned fire hose and turn it into a luxury lifestyle product. But anyway, we'll find out all about that. Before we go any further, apart from welcoming you, tell us a little bit, if you would, about your background and and where this started and how on earth you ended up doing what you're doing now. Sure. It's uh, it's lovely to be here. Um, My background and how I got into this is, you know, there is a long story and there's a a, a short story, so we'll probably stick with the shorter one. you know, I I first moved to the UK in 2004, and at that point, I knew I wanted to do something to solve a, an environmental problem. I, I really had this idea in my head that the rest of my life was in front of me, and it had to be dedicated to solving an environmental problem. And I've always had a thing for waste, so I spent quite a bit of my first few weeks and months in the UK visiting, you know, the sewer, waste transfer stations, landfill sites looking for something that I thought I could fix because the whole problem at the time was hundred million tons of waste. I thought I need to find a smaller niche waste that I can really get to grips with. And when I saw the fire hose, I knew that that was it. I knew that the fire hose was going to be the problem that I would solve. And the reason for that was I just fell in love with it. I saw it coiled up on a rooftop in Croydon, this rich, lustrous, red, life-saving material. And I knew that it couldn't go to landfill. Wow. I, I mean, that, that sounds like the short version. But um, when, pe- when people, and I really, this is, I find this really humbling because, um, and I don't mean this in, in a disrespectful way, but how somebody can focus, can see a coiled up hose on a rooftop in Croydon and kind of go, there's the career opportunity. There's, there's the way to change the world one step at a time or one bit at a time. Um, so how, how does one get started when one has an idea, Cressy? Because we get lots of emails from listeners all around the world saying, I've got this great idea, uh, but I just kind of don't know how to get started. How, how does one go about taking a fire hose and turning it into a business? 
Well, for, for us, we had, we, it was, it was two things at once. And I really want people to, to follow this advice. One is research. You know, I didn't know what fire hose was. I didn't know what it was capable of. I didn't know what industry we were going to go into. I was completely agnostic as to what solution we might find for it. I just knew we had to save it. And that set us down this huge research uh, trajectory. We went to Yorkshire to see where fire hose was made. We learned about its heating point, its melting point. How, how was it put together and why can't it be traditionally recycled? And if it can't be traditionally recycled, what else can we do with nitrile rubber? So we were constantly looking at where nitrile rubber exists in the economy. So research is, is, is key, but at the same time, start, get going. You know, I meet lots of people who spend three or four years on a business plan and, and, and they might have this beautiful polished uh, document by the end of it, but they have no idea whether the market actually wants their particular solution or not. So we did both of those things at once. I, initially, I thought fire hose would be great for roof tiles. So we tiled a shed roof in it, um, only to discover in the research that fire hose, when it's not a fire hose anymore, is actually flammable. <laughs> and uh, if you leave it out in the sun for a decade, it's gonna crack. So somewhere in, in, in Brixton, there's a leaky shed roof that's my fault. Um, hopefully it hasn't burned down. But then, then on the on the on the flip side of that, we tried something, you know. So even though the research as we were doing this experimentation showed that that wasn't what we should be doing, we were trying stuff at the same time that we were researching. So there's this, I guess you just have to be pushy in all aspects of, of what you're trying to do. Push the envelope from a you know from an R&D side, but also push the envelope from a what are you willing to try side who are you willing to contact are, are you going to put your reputation on the line here mm. I, I love that answer Cressy and and if I may kind of extrapolate some of the things you've said from that you know this whole idea about kind of just moving forward getting out of the starting blocks taking some positive action but at the same time learning from the stuff that doesn't work because I think so many people that write into us uh, give the impression that unless they can get it right on day one it's not an idea worth pursuing. And of course, everyone like you that we speak to has achieved some success says it didn't work first time around. You know, we, we had to try and fail in order to learn and grow. So um, yeah, I think you've articulated that very well. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but is there a, is there a favorite product that is made out of fire hose that you, that you have, one that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we when we started, actually, when we worked out that in the industry, so our research led us to to understand that some big French luxury brands have been using nitrile rubber since the the advent of complex polymers, right? So that's when we got the idea of going into the luxury market. And for the first few years, we could only make belts because El, between Elvis and myself, we didn't know how to sew. Um, we didn't know how to manufacture goods, so we we made belts which were long and straight, just like fire hose. But when we made our first collection and we spent a lot of time researching what we should make, you know, we didn't take a pure design approach. We, we took the approach that let's camp out in department stores and see what people are buying day in, day out, year in, year out. Let's, let's really find out what the classic pieces are. The first bag we ever made was um, a bucket tote and it is still a best selling item today. And I still carry my original one um, I'm proud of the, the belts too. You know, Elvis and I are still wearing our original belts, 
but the the classic tote in red decommissioned fire hose is an absolute workhorse <laughs> and it's great for london living or city living because if someone spills a pint on it you can wipe it clean you can set it down on the tube floor you don't have to be super precious about it i sometimes in a rainstorm will hold it happily over my head to to um to stay dry it just does what it needs to do and it looks spectacular 12 years later so yeah, that's what I'm really proud of. Wow. So if you filled it with water, it wouldn't leak like the roof, right? Well, it would leak because it's stitched together. So it would leak at the seams, but but it it, it holds it's less we call it water resistant rather than waterproof. But yes, it is very water resistant. I, I think in fairness, that is a claim you can you can uh um you can definitely make, you know, the water resistant resistancy one assumes that the uh, the base material there ticks or checks that particular box. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested to go back to something you said right at the beginning, Cressy, if I may, when you said I decided to kind of look at the, I'm paraphrasing now, apologies, but I, I kind of looked at the waste market, this huge, I mean, did you kind of get out of bed one day and, and decide that you had a particular love of waste? Or, or was it, was, where did that fascination come from? Where did that need to do something about that particular environmental issue come from? Was it was it something that was inspired from somewhere or did it did he just kind of dream it up one day? I it definitely came from childhood. You know, I used to go to the the dump with my dad on a on a Saturday. He had this little yellow truck. Um, and we would take stuff to the dump um, for, for our family, for our neighbors' families. You know, this is before there was regular waste collection in Canada. We just had recycling, as far as I can remember. And, and I just remember seeing all of these incredible things there that I didn't understand why they were there. We, this was also sort of in, in the prairies of Canada. And there were seagulls, which you just didn't see anywhere else. So for me, it was kind of this really magical place that was filled with opportunity. And I, you know, so I had those experiences with my dad, but I also had this incredible maternal grandmother who just wouldn't wouldn't dream of wasting anything. And I, and her generation and and those women in my family didn't waste food or time or talent or opportunity. You know, their quilts were made of tiny two centimeter squares of scraps of old clothing. They canned and jarred everything they could grow in the summer so that they could survive the winter. You know, I, I just. I just I had that upbringing and then suddenly at the age of 16 I got a scholarship to finish high school in Hong Kong and when I got there it was my first real interaction with a consumer driven society and I just saw all of this waste and lots of it ending up in the sea and I and and I was you know if I let's say I was an environmentalist always or from birth but suddenly it kicked into gear suddenly I thought no I can't just be a passive environmentalist. I have to be an active environmentalist. I have to do something about this. And, you know, at first I thought it was politics. I studied politics at university. Um, then, thank goodness, my first job, my, I, I, which I completely fluked, was working for um, a woman in a small venture capital company. And what I saw there was all these entrepreneurs who got to turn an idea into reality. And for me, the idea was the environment. And I knew that that as soon as I had any kind of entrepreneurial skills, which I was constantly learning, for, let's say from that day forward, I was gonna be able to apply those to environmental problems. Mm. I'm gonna ask you a bit of a curveball question now. 
Um, talk to us about NFTs, Cressy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh. joking. I'm joking. For all no, the emperor is close. I'm happy to talk about them. I find them absolutely asinine. You know, we are in a time of climate crisis and biodiversity loss crisis. And there's so much news spent on something that doesn't exist, that uses a whole heap of utilities that we don't need it to use. And really, what is it for? To provoke people to spend money on yet more things that not only do they not need, that don't even exist. You know, we need to solve problems now. And the problems we have now are very fungible, right? So I, I just don't have time to waste on the emperor's new clothes. Really, I don't. I love that answer. Uh, that, that really resonates with me because when I read, I think it was on a LinkedIn page of yours, uh, the answer to that question when you were first asked it was, you lost me at NFTs, I think was your answer. Uh, and that's the answer I give when everyone raises that particular subject. Um, tell us about the three pillars, uh, Cressy, because that, that's, that's something I see a lot when I read about you and from everything I know about you. So just, if you don't mind, share that with with the listeners, what what does the three pillars mean to you? Well, everybody is always trying to tell you when you're a, a young entrepreneur. So, you know, we started this business in our in our early 20s that you've got to be able to give not just an elevator pitch, but like a two second pitch for your business. And we distilled it down to the three things that we really do. We rescue materials. We transform them into beautiful things and we donate 50 percent of the profits to charity. So we rescue, we transform and we donate. And, and whenever we look at taking on a new material, if we don't think we can do those three things well, we don't take it on. If we think, yeah, we can rescue and maybe there'll be a bit of donation, but we don't think we can really make it into something magical, then it's not really for Elvis and I, because that's that's not our expertise. That's not our wheelhouse. Um, so for us, yeah, it has to have those three components um, in order for it to really become something that we're going to be proud of and we're going to share, and we're going to celebrate and, and well, spend 24 seven on for the yeah. next many decades. And how did you meet Elvis? How did that all come about? And, and when did you decide to start working together? Um, well, Elvis and I have been together long before the business. We met on a boat in Hong Kong um, at a superheroes party. He was dressed as Superman and introduced as Elvis. So basically my life changed in that, in that, in that instant. Um, I think we had one day uh, that we moved in with him. <laughs> so that was, like, that was the best snap decision I ever made. Why wouldn't uh, you? Like, with great respect, why as a woman would you not want to move with Superman and Elvis all rolled into one? Uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. And actually the, the most magical thing I think about us and, and about the business is that is that another a piece of advice that everyone is always giving to women is that the best decision and the biggest decision you have to make is who your partner is going to be in life. And, you know, although I made the decision about Elvis very quickly, it turned out to have been absolutely the best decision for me because he backs everything that I want to try to the hilt. You know, it wasn't me who learned how to sew. It was him. And at the same time, He's the funniest person I know, the kindest person I know, the most generous and easily, easily by a country mile, the most dependable. Um, so 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 meeting him for sure was the best luck of my life. I love that. That's a that's a lovely story. Um, along the way, Cressy, would it be fair to say kind of a rhetorical question, really? Would it be fair to say that and you, you have alluded to this already, that there are moments or have been moments in your life 
that haven't really gone according to plan, where something you tried has failed, whether you've learned from it or not, um, that things have become derailed or, you know, there are times you question what you're doing. We get more questions from listeners around the world than on this subject than any other. How do I deal with life's problems? How do you and Elvis deal with life, life problems? I mean, clearly he's a funny guy, so keeps a smile on your face and, and you probably with him as well. But practically, how do you deal with setbacks? Because as I said, we get more questions about that than any other subject. Yeah, I mean, so there's there's two guys, two aspects to this. You know, one people always say like, what's what's the plan, and or how did you map out your career? Well, I never had a plan. I still don't have a plan. I do the things that I think are the most interesting and the most challenging and the most suitable for my skill set to solve. You know, th that's how I make decisions. Like, yeah, I should do that because maybe I can make a contribution there. Um, but how do we deal with? Uh, I mean, and in the history of our company, we're 17 years in now. Uh, we have had so many setbacks, so many ups and downs, especially in the early years, there were so many times when one little thing could have gone slightly wrong and that would have tanked us. You know? And I guess we have always had this, this uh, commitment to getting up in the morning and spending some time together. It's been a lot easier since we had a dog because we get up in the morning and take him for a walk. Um, so we talk early in the morning about what we think we need to do that day. And we do the same at the end of the day. We talk through what we need to do at the end of that day. So we are, we're constantly checking in with each other. We have absolute faith in each other. And if things are still sort of tanking by a Friday, we have um, two bottles of red wine with our pizza instead of one. But, we, but then we wake up on Saturday and get stuck in again. So I guess it's always this idea that there's a, there is a bit of belief that the two of us together can solve pretty much any problem. And that solution may not look at all like what we thought it was going to look like, but we're okay with that. We know that we're going to stubbornly stick with it, um, and we know that uh, we know that 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 hope comes from action rather than the other way around. You know, you, you you don't just get to be miraculously hopeful by hoping. You have to be doing things in order to have faith in what you're doing, in order to believe that good things will come. Gosh, a number of times I've said something like that before. I think you're absolutely right. Um, are we? This is a huge question now, and this is probably going to set you off at a, uh, off on one. But are we doing again another rhetorical question? I guess are we doing enough as a society uh, to to tackle the waste issue, to tackle the environmental crisis that we undoubtedly face? No. Um, absolutely 100% hard no. I, I, I like to, you know, I remember when Al Gore was uh, doing his tour for Inconvenient Truth and he, I, I got to see him speak in London and he said, you know, we've got 10 years to save the planet and we've got to do all these things. And, and, and some things did happen, but a lot of things didn't. So that 10 years went by with very little action. Now we have less time to save the planet. And I don't see the immediacy, certainly from government. I see businesses doing more than governments. I see us getting you know, sidetracked by populism, sidetracked by Putin, sidetracked by all kinds of economic issues, which, which are short-term and temporary and seem to always trump the future of civilization, which just doesn't make sense to me. You know, I love I love uh, Greta because finally there's somebody who can say, 
why are you acting like your house is on fire? Because your house is on fire. <laughs> and I feel like everything Elvis and I do is because we're acting like our house is on fire. You know, at the start of the pandemic, we're like, right, we need to be a net regenerative business. So we're going to start sequestering carbon. We're going to start planting trees. We're not going to offset. We're not going to get anyone else to do that on our behalf. We're going to do that ourselves. We bought a farm. We started, we planted 5,000 trees. We started doing all of this stuff that we don't have any expertise in, but we were acting with immediacy. And I don't see that from, uh, I don't see that at all from the vast majority of the world's businesses. Yes, does I, do I see that action coming from my fellow hero social enterprises and B Corp businesses? Yes, but not from the wider economy. I still see in a lot of cases a race to the bottom and an inability to realize that climate solutions involve human beings and communities and a reduction in inequality rather than an, an, a further increase in inequality. You know, there's not enough people who think about this whole issue in the round and how you have to tackle all 360 degrees of it all the time with all of your efforts. Uh, no, absolutely not. We're not doing enough about waste. We're not doing enough about climate. We're not ever doing enough. And given how much how much privilege we all have and how much um, benefit of education and science and refrigeration and vaccination we all have, one wonders why we're we're so bad at solving this problem, which is just so big. And you talk about, you know, governments aren't doing enough. I don't think there's too many people disagree with that one. So let's call that the macro level. What about at the micro level? What what advice would you give to you know people like me and those listening? Maybe that we could do um, at, at our level to make a small contribution. I'll, I'll take you back, I don't know, four years. I went to the Maldives. Every day I was lucky enough to have a beach villa, but every day I could see countless amounts of plastic being washed off, washed off onto the beach. So I went and got a couple of big bin liners and every day I filled two huge black bin bags of plastic that had been washed up on this beautiful beach. Um, but what can we do? And, and, and the general view of the local people was, well, it's too big a problem to solve. So what's the point in even trying? But what could we do as a society, Cressy, in your opinion, that might help that process? I think... I think this is, again, this is a, something that you can approach with curiosity and optimism. You have to think all of the ways that you interact with the different systems that underpin everything. So how do you interact with the food system? Is the food system actually broken? Yeah, according to George Monbiot, absolutely is. It, according to most people who are looking seriously at farming, yeah, it's broken. And if you understand that, then you think, okay, I've got to change my diet. I've got to change how I interact with the food system. I've got to buy local organic food. I cannot produce food waste. Instead of you know buying more food and not having leftovers, I've got to pulse it all up and have a soup on Thursday night. <laughs> you know, you've got to think, what is my interaction with the food system? You've got to look in your own bin. This is a big exercise I get people to do. I was like, every Friday, look in your bin. What's there? What's habitually there? Because if you are producing something uh, habitually, like on a regular basis, there's very there's going to be some quick wins in there. There's going to be things that you can replace. You know, you switch from shampoo to shampoo bars. Immediately, you're eliminating shipping all of that water around. You're el eliminating all of that heavy duty polymers with it you know there's there's things like that where you just have to think about how you engage with it think about how you travel 
you know, there's a huge movement around slow travel, around taking the train, around, you know, holidaying and vacationing in your own community or finding a community that could use your service rather than just, you know, your, your, your time and your time on a beach. Um, but, but it's just, it's just being curious about your relationship with your wider community, with your global community, um, with the, the, the world of things and thinking about what the impacts of all of those things are and how in some ways you can reduce, let's say your carbon footprint, but in other ways, how can I maximize my footprint? How can I actually do an incredible amount of wonderful things and then just do more and more and more of that? I feel really bad about going to the Maldives on holiday now. Um, <laughs> hey, I, you um, know, travel is the last thing that I want people to give up. And the reason for that is, is that I, I do believe that the bigger problems we've got can only be tackled by the whole global community working together. And if we don't know each other and love each other and respect each other's cultures, that's not going to happen. So I, I would be the last person to want anyone to take travel off the table. Well, and also I have a sister that lives in New Zealand and a family that lives in Canada. So, you know, I do want to see these people again. I was, I was being somewhat flippant, of course, but uh, the fact of the matter is I've personally learned so much from travel, you know, cultures and communities and religion and all kinds of stuff. That's a whole different conversation. I also happen to know you're a board member of Keep Britain Tidy. And there's people of my generation that will be listening going, Keep Britain Tidy? Hang on a minute. There used to be adverts for Keep Britain Tidy on the television. What on earth happened to Keep Britain Tidy? And it was only when we were doing this research, I thought, Keep Britain Tidy, is that actually still a thing? So tell us about your involvement with Keep Britain Tidy. Well, obviously, you know, waste is a big thing for me. Um, and Keep Britain Tidy, it used to be a government run initiative, and then it became a private, uh, not private, it became a charitable organization, which certainly wouldn't be paying for ads anymore. So that's, that's why it probably disappeared from TV screens. But the litter issue didn't disappear. So I'm very glad that the charity is still is still very much around. They do groundbreaking research on why litter is worse in some areas than other areas, what kind of nudge things can you do with people to change their behaviors? What is the wider impact on litter? I mean, I read this one document that they produced that looked into the just the impact of drinks containers. You know, we litter 30 some odd million drinks containers into our public spaces each year in the UK. And these drinks containers are responsible for the deaths of three to four million small mammals because they're crawling in, they're getting stuck, they're getting hit by cars as they cross the road to get to the sugar. I mean, it's not just a visual issue. It's not just plastic in the sea issue. It's not just turning into microplastics. It's also killing small mammals. I think, I think we need to have organizations like this to highlight the damage that we do almost casually. Um, so, you know, I became a board member because I believe in the work that it does. And I also sort of think that that we're at a turning point here where people constantly in the news are talking about their rights, but rarely about their responsibilities. And, and I feel like if we really want to have a progressive civilization, people need to understand the balance of the two that your rights are only your rights insofar as they don't hamper anyone else's ability to live. And we've pushed that boundary way, way, way too far. We don't have it as a 50-50 balance at the moment, certainly not people who are alive and well in Western, civil, in Western countries where 
you know, we're using too many resources, we're wasting too many, um, too many raw materials, we're wasting too much food. And, you know, we're using, what is it, seven, nine planets now worth of resources every year. So we need to think more about, about how we balance our rights and our responsibilities. I think everyone listening to you so far has drawn a conclusion that you would be a worthy recipient of, uh, of recognition. And, and I'm pleased to say, and quite rightly so, you had the MBE bestowed upon you, which was then upgraded last year to CBE. Some would say that's just being greedy, Cressy, you know, uh, MBE, <laughs> MBE and CBE, but clearly very, very well deserved. The obvious question, um, clearly amazing to be recognised uh, in everything you do, but I guess you got to go to Buckingham Palace. Uh, tell us about that little experience. Well, in two, 2013, it, it was amazing because I, I, I actually met the Queen and, you know, she was really interested in the fact that Firehose had previously gone to landfill and expressed great gratitude that we had decided to save it. Um, and then just recently um, met uh, Princess Anne and she was, again, you know, her research was fantastic because she didn't just know about the work that we've been doing with materials and charitable donations. She knew about the work that we were doing on the farm. And, I, you know, I have a feeling, Elvis has this feeling that I went back the second time around because C, the C in CBE stands for commander. And he, he thinks that he thinks that that's a very suitable term to express, you know, I guess certain parts of my personality. <laughs> I love that, I love that. Um, Cressy, unfortunately, I'd love to talk to you all day, could easily do that, but um, time is, is pressing. So I've got a couple of final questions I need to ask you, if I may. The first one is uh, for everyone listening that would love to check out what you're doing, and I, I don't just mean your, your, your philanthropic work and, and all the great things you're doing for our environment, for our planet, um, but also the amazing products that you're you're creating. So, um, if you would, um, social media handles, website. If people want to know more about uh, Cressy Westling, where do they where do they find you? Well, the good news is is that our website and all our social handles are Elvis and Cressy. Elvis A N D K R E S S E. Um, but if you Google Elvis and Firehose, you're going to find us. <laughs> you're going to be able to track us down. And, you know, if you're ever in, in North Kent, if you're ever heading, heading out to the seaside at Whitstable, um, you know, come in, come and see us. We love showing people around the farm. We love showing them our sewage treatment system that we've built ourselves. <laughs> we're, we're a very transparent company. I love that. Show people your sewage treatment system. Um, that, yeah, that's a, that's a conversation killer most of the time. But I think on this particular occasion, we'd, uh, we'd love to take you up on that offer. The final question, Cressy, if, if um, you were having a conversation of a, a young aspirational entrepreneur or, or a son or a daughter, for example, and they said, given all of your experience um, from the finding the coiled up fire hose on the top of a building in Croydon, through all the trials, the tribulations, the highs and the lows, if there was just one, one mantra, one rule to live your life by, run a business by, what would the one rule be that transcended all others? This is super easy for me because um, it was something that my grandmother said to, to me when I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old. And she probably didn't think about it twice, but I think about it every single day. And that is, if you are capable you are responsible. 
works in pretty much every situation. <laughs> I love that. Uh, very, I mean, great advice, but also very poignant. Hopefully everyone will take something away and, and reflect on, on that closing comment. Um, Cressy Westling, thank you so much. Uh, everything that we've all heard today is hugely inspirational. It would be lovely to think that not only would people buy a few tote bags along the way, rather than going wasting uh, their money on um, something that doesn't do its bit for, for the environment, um, I think there's a lot of people that hopefully will change a few habits and make a contribution to supporting you and your efforts in terms of doing what they can for the environment. It's a responsibility that we all have. But today, hopefully, will inspire a few more people to get behind you. So thank you very much indeed for being a wonderful guest on the podcast today. Thank you so much. And thank you, of course, to all of you for listening. We don't have people like Cressy join us on the podcast without your support. Do remember, we've got another guest joining us this time next week. I mean, they've got some big shoes to fill following Cressy Wrestling. But remember, new guests every week sharing their own insights into achieving success or overcoming life challenges. Please make sure you subscribe. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter. It's at Sandro's Podcast. You know the drill by now. If you've got any questions, it's hello at sandrospodcast.com. Don't forget the little S in the middle. And you can contact, of course, Cressy as she's openly invited you to do directly if you wish. Do leave those reviews on iTunes. They're really important, please. And remember to connect with me. It's at Sandro Forte on Twitter and the real Sandro Forte on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you again to Cressy Westling, an amazing guest. I'm sure you'll agree. And until this time next week, when we shall meet again, it's goodbye for now. <laughs>